So we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. Paul, he writes to the church at Corinth in order to ad- admonish the local church toward unity, particularly unity through maturity. And maturity, according to Paul, is the way that we accomplish unity in the church and overflowing from the church, unity in the world. And Paul even shared part of his post-millennial vision uh, for the church, right? He did, he's done that already. Like what happens in the church and the unity that we find in the church, it overflows to society, overflows to our cities, overflows to our counties, our states, our countries. And eventually when Christ's kingdom is finished taking over the world eventually to the world as a whole. So all of the unity that the world is striving for, it's found found by pursuing a mature faith in Jesus Christ and not by worldly means. Um, in chapter 9, Paul is answering a, a new question that apparently he was made aware of from Chloe's people in this letter that Chloe's people wrote to him, or I presume that Chloe's people are the ones who wrote the letter because they were the ones in the church on Paul's side. The other groups were not necessarily on Paul's side. In fact, they didn't like Paul very much. So Paul receives a letter from Chloe's people, and one of the questions, I wish we had the letter, but one of the questions supposedly was in this letter was, should we be paying our pastors, (laughs) right? Uh, Should our pastors be be paid at all? After all, aren't they serving the Lord? Further, if we are paying them, shouldn't we be able to create our job descriptions for them? So I don't know exactly what was in that letter that Chloe's people sent, or I think it was Chloe's people who sent that letter, but it had to be something like that, because that's the sort of question Paul is responding to here in chapter 9. Isn't it amazing Almost all the questions we have are answered in the scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'll, I'll read through these 18 verses, and then we will walk through like we normally do. Now, hopefully I can be succinct enough to, to fit this sermon within the seven hours that have been allotted to me. This one. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Am I... It's the Apostle Paul. Am I not free? Remember, right before this, he was talking about Christian liberty, freedom in Christ. It only makes sense then that he would relate this, co- this conversation to freedom, liberty in Christ. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine or question me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, For our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh 
and the hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? And nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel." For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to thank you for bringing us together again this week. We want, to, we want to pray that you bless the work of our hands in this endeavor. We believe it is of you. We want to pray that the proclamation of your word this morning accomplishes the work that you have set out for it to do, that your will be done. And Lord, that your kingdom come on this earth as it is in heaven. We pray for revival in Douglas, Arizona in Cochise County, across this nation and around the world, through the work we are doing here, the exposition of Scripture. We pray that your saints not be complacent in their maturity or lack thereof, in their knowledge, that we, not, that we not come up with excuses not to delve deep into your word. God, if this truly is your word, we we want to know we want to know every every letter is too important not to know God give us ears to hear and minds to understand what you have to say what you have to say and through the proclamation of your your word sanctify our hearts and conform us to the image of your son Jesus Christ in everything Lord we love you Thank you. Thank you for condescending to us. Thank you for having communion with us this morning. Now, we desire to sit at your feet and learn from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, I was sharing with Ken earlier. This is the first time I've ever in my life come to a passage like this and not been receiving a paycheck from a local church. So this is kind of nice. You know, if you're receiving a paycheck from a local church and you come to a passage like this, it's like, I'm going to have somebody else preach it because I'm the one receiving the paycheck. And it's, it's just going to sound like I'm saying, it's a good thing y'all are paying me and I need a raise. You know, <laughs> you don't want to come across that way. 
Um, because, well, in you know, 1 Timothy chapter 3, you have the qualifications for an elder of the church not to be interested in sordid gain, not to be a lover of money, and then a pastor who is in a church or an elder who is in a church where he has to present this text and he also happens to be the, the primary teacher being paid to labor in the word. It comes across as kind of kind of arrogant and like when, oh, when, when it's time to do the budget this next year, y'all need to consider not taking my salary away, right? Like, but that's not at all why Paul is addressing this question. Paul is addressing this question because the Corinthians had concerns about this, uh, having a servant of the Lord in the capacity uh, of, of teacher in the church, um, having the word of God that has been provided by God freely, it's weird to, weird to take a position from a pastoral standpoint or the standpoint of a, of a teacher of Holy Scripture. It's, it's, it just feels weird to take the standpoint, I'm going to charge people for the material that I put out, for the exposition, the, the work that I do, because that almost seems tantamount to, to charging people to receive the word of God, Right? Um, Paul answers this question in a very beautiful way, though. I, I see where there could be some sincere concerns, but I also think there are concerns like, we're paying these guys, and they're not doing what we want them to do, Paul. Uh, so how, how do we talk to them about what they need to do and our expectations for them since they're getting our money, right? So I think that question's probably behind this. And then, then there's the general question, probably from the guys who are preaching and teaching and receiving a paycheck, if they are sincere, like, it feels weird receiving money for this. I, I'm not sure I really l- like being paid to do this kind of, kind of work because it kind of feels like I'm using God. And in all my years of ministry, which is more than a decade now, I have been through this struggle with every church Katie and I have been in and been serving because um, it kind of does feel like we're using God in order to in order to fatten our pockets, and no matter how much you're getting paid, like that's what it feels like. And so we start praising guys who are bivocational, right? Like you are so much more spiritual than I am because you don't receive a paycheck from your church and you're supporting yourself in this. And you can see how that can be perceived as like this amazing piousness. And rarely, though, do we go to Scripture to see what Scripture says about it. Uh, we go to Scripture and we quote a little line. Don't muzzle, don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing grain. Uh, oh, a worker is worthy of his wages. And we'll quote those verses um, to say, yeah, it's right for a church to pay their pastors. But rarely do we have this in-depth like look at what is the Bible's actual answer to this question. Should we compensate those who are working hard at preaching and teaching. So I'm, I'm glad this is in here. I'm glad chapter 9 is not absent from the Bible. Uh, I am sad that we don't investigate it more. And you can see why most congregations maybe wouldn't be wel- welcoming of a, of a message from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And up front here, I just have to say that in our current cultural context... The church, coming from my own experiences and talking with my friends who are in pastoral ministry and people I, people I know across this country, the church is pretty stingy when it comes to paying people. 
and having recently plugged into a secular job where there's not only a paycheck but 401k benefits and uh, even so much as like uniform allowance and the employer is good to the employees and generous to the employees um, it's weird coming from a, a church background being mostly in pastoral ministry where the church just treats treats her elders like crap compared to the way the world treats employees, those who labor. And I, I think that's unacceptable. If we are competing against the world, and if we are in Christ who gives us generous hearts, it seems like we should be doing better than the world at caring for those in pastoral ministry. That being said, let's begin walking through 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll read verses 1 through 6 first, and I'll make some comments on that, and then we'll move on. Paul says, Am I not free? There, Paul, referring to the freedom he was talking about in the previous passage, um, and this, the idea of Christian liberty there. Uh, Paul is, uh, of course, this question comes from the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth is asking this question because there is a present reality there, some issue that has come about that has caused the congregation to convey to Chloe's people, hey, when you send this letter to that darn Paul, ask this question, because we want to know what he has to say about this issue that's taking place for us right now, right here, in our context. We need, we need this. And as much as they didn't like Paul, maybe they were looking for guidance or maybe they were looking for uh, some more ammunition with which to shoot him. I do not know. But Paul here, he doesn't say, here is your context, here are your issues, and here's the answer. Instead, he starts talking about his own freedom and how this applies to him in his current circumstance. Uh, Paul does this often. Uh, he, he appropriates the application of scripture to himself for the benefit of the church. He did this explicitly in chapter 4, verse 6. Appropriates this application to himself, makes application to himself so that the local church can glean that without, without Paul putting the church down. He, he does application this way in order to be edifying so he doesn't have to tear down the body. Like, you dummies. Why would you ask a stupid question like this? Here's your issue, and here's how you should solve it in a very condescending way where he is being condescending of the church, but instead he takes more of a, a godly position, more of a Christly position when he says, I'm going to appropriate this application to myself so that in seeing how it applies to me, you can, you can glean that application for your own life, which is a much better way to edify others because then people are less likely to feel just outright attacked by what we are saying. So I think we can learn something from Paul on that front. Am I not free? I, I'm free in Christ. I just explained to you how I have liberty in Christ. This is a rhetorical question. The answer should be assumed. Yes, Paul, you are free. Am I not an apostle? Apostle is an office in the church that can only be filled by those who have seen Jesus face to face, right? Paul has seen Christ. He's going to tell us in the next rhetorical question. Have I not seen Christ? He has seen Christ. This position, this office, apostle, was only filled by 14 people in history. Judas was one of those, and he lost his status as an apostle, and that 
office was filled by Matthias. So total living apostles at this time are 13, the 12 apostles to the Jews and Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. Am I not an apostle? Yes, Paul, you are an apostle. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yes, Paul, we read your testimony. You have seen Jesus our Lord. Are you not my work in the Lord? Yes, you planted this local church at Corinth, and that's why we are here. Verse 2, if to others I am not apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now there is an interesting idea for Paul the apostle, his, the seal of his apostleship, the seal of his calling into office in the church was the fruit of the work of his hands. You, those who I have invested in, you are the seal of my apostleship. And I think applied, like if the church at Corinth is, is, is to take this and apply it, right? That means that the seal of the calling, at least of the teachers in the church, if not anyone else who has any other sort of calling in the Holy Spirit, right? At least the calling of the teachers, the calling of the elders of the church, is sealed by the work of their, their hands, the fruit that comes out of that. Such that if there is no fruit, and, and, and here a big clarification needs to be made. I'm not talking about worldly sort of fruit, right? Um, health and wealth preachers, a word of faith preachers, the fruit they count on, the fruit they rely on is the testimony of people and the, the growing of the numbers of their followers and the size of their bank accounts, right? That's the fruit. Like, like if those things are increasing, I'm obviously called, and they would call themselves probably an apostle, right? I'm obviously called. That's not, that's not the kind of fruit Paul's talking about here. That's not the type of seal upon his ministry he's talking about. Paul doesn't have a bank account. And have banks then like we have now. He had some kind of bank, but not the kind we have now, right? He wasn't talking about that kind of bank account. He certainly wasn't talking about his number of followers. And most of the church at Corinth, they didn't like him. They weren't following him. He had Chloe's people in there. That's it, right? There were divisions being caused because people didn't want to follow Paul. So that can't be the seal he's talking about. It's also not the seal of like modern day evangelical pastors, right? Or evangelists who count their success by the number of people who walk an aisle and say a prayer and put their name on a card or, or get drowned in the Baptist, I mean dunked in the baptistry or or list their name on a membership role, right? That's not the type of... Like, if those things are growing, if we can count all these numbers, like, we baptized 100 people this year, and that's the measure of success and the seal of your ministry, you are living in, in sin, I think, because that's not at all what Paul is getting at here. No, the, the seal of Paul's ministry, it's, it's the people. It's the people. And the fact that he came in and he started preaching the gospel in Corinth and this, and this church was founded through his proclamation of the gospel. And the church is still there. And the people are still there. And the people are still struggling to figure out what, what truth is. And Paul is still able to pour into those in the congregation who will still listen to him. This is the seal of Paul's ministry. 
from this, I would just encourage anyone who is in ministry, whether an elder of the church, whether providing resources, whether, whether a teacher of a small group, whether we're raising children, whether we're called by the Holy Spirit simply to reach out to the people we work with and be Christians before them, I would just encourage us all to look back on our lives, and this is quite the journey for me this past week, to look back on our lives and all the, all the fruit that our lives have produced as we have, as we have pursued what we believe to be the calling of God upon our lives, whether that be as an elder of the church, an instructor, a professor, a parent, or someone who works any other kind of job. If the fruit that is coming out of our lives is honoring to God, that is the seal upon that is the seal by which our, our ministries are. And we can tell we are doing what we have been called to do when we are bearing that kind of fruit as a seal. It does not mean everyone who has the desire to preach and teach should. Desire is not synonymous with calling. You can say, I have a desire to do something for the Lord. Great. You'll find out if you're called when you get into it. Right? But we should be very careful of our mere desires because our desires throw us into heresy. And people who should not be preaching end up preaching in the context here of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Teachers arise within the church who should not be preachers or teachers because they are not maybe qualified, but qualification isn't even the only thing that legitimizes someone's teaching ministry. Being called is, and someone just may not be called to do such a thing. We have a desire to do something, but instead of pursuing the desires of our wretched hearts, we should do what we can to discern God's calling on our lives, which may be different. In my experience, God gives desire according to his calling, but the two are not synonymous. My defense, this is verse 3, my defense to those who examine me, examine here being a word that means question, as if in a court case. So there are those in the church who want to question Paul. Maybe this was part of that letter like, Paul, here are my grievances against you. And maybe they, were <laughs> maybe they were calling up all their buddies like, hey, you have any grievances against Paul that we can list on a form so we can send them to Paul in this letter that we're writing to Paul? Like, this is the type of questioning, this examination, this is the type of questioning that takes place in a courtroom. And Paul just comes out and makes that known. He puts it out there. Here's my defense to those who would question me as if I were in court. Here's my defense to those who would examine me in this. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Well, yes, Paul, you just explained that in chapter 8, right? Yes, we have the, the right to eat and drink. And right here is the same word that's used for freedom earlier. So Paul isn't strengthening his language to say we as Christians have rights to this, right? He's not strengthening his language to mean that. Uh, when, he, when we see the word right in English in this passage, this is the same word used to describe Christian liberty 
in chapter 8. So we should, we should use it as liberty and not right. Because if we, if we use this word as right, it almost sounds like as Christians we are entitled at everyone else's expense to these things. And that's not what Paul is getting at. The Greek word is the same word that's used to describe liberty in chapter 8. Do we not have liberty to eat and drink? Well, yes, you just explained this. Do we not have liberty to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and even the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Yes, Paul, you explained this too. You said we would be, we'd be better off remaining single, but you said it was not a sin to get married or remarried. Yes, you explained this earlier in your letter. Verse 6, or do, and Paul, Paul posits the question, frames the question exactly like he wants to frame the question in order to answer it. Or do only Barnabas and I, so he's answering an accusation, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? And here he's talking about working in a sense that we would call secular work. Paul is a, a tent maker by trade. He, he makes tents in order to support his ministry while he is planting churches. He's a tent maker. And Paul, being a tent maker, has led us to describe like bivocational ministry as tent making ministry. Like the, the pastor of, of a church or a pastor in the church or an elder in the church or someone who is church planting has a job in the secular world in order to support the ministry that he is doing for the church. And we, we, we call those people tent-making pastors, tent-making elders, tent-making missionaries, tent-making church planters. This is the position I, I have right now. Right now, I would be qualified as a tent-making elder, which is cool when I when I get to read this passage from that context. But Paul asked this question, are Barnabas and I the only ones who don't have the liberty to stop working our secular jobs in order to focus on the ministry of the church? Are we the only ones? So there's some kind of accusation there like, Paul, you just want to take everybody's money. I don't know. I don't know if that was an accusation there or not, but it could seem that way, right? And Paul just says, are Barnabas and I the only ones? Are we held to a standard other than the rest of the apostles who do this for a living? Are we held to a different standard? Do we not have the right to quit our secular jobs in order to focus on ministry? And that's the question he answers. And he frames it this way on purpose. Verses 7, seven through 14, we find his answer. Who at any time... He jumps right to illustration. Classic Paul. Jumps right to philosophical illustration to prove a point, to, to show how the church and the way the church treats the church's teachers is different from any secular industry. And as Paul has done previously in 1 Corinthians, he's insinuating that the world actually does better at this than the church, even in Paul's day. Look at this, his illustration here, verse 7. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? No one. No one in the right mind, anyway, right? We have some crazies around, but no one serves as a soldier at his own expense. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? No one. 
You have to provide for yourself while you're providing for others, even if this is industry, right? If you didn't need any of your own fruit, you'd have to buy it from someone else, and that doesn't make sense because you're going to spend more money that way. No one does. Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? No one, for the same reason. And in verse 8, Paul says, I am not speaking these things according to human judgment. Now, and what's funny is his illustration is human judgment. That's society's way of doing things. That is the secular market. You get a fair wage for the labor you do if you have a good boss. And if you own the company, you glean from the top, right? That's the world's way of doing things. But Paul wants to make it very clear. But our way is to be higher than that. I don't speak these things according to human judgment. Y'all, if that's the way the world does things, the way the church does things ought to make more sense than that. And so Paul then appeals to the law to show us that the, the law, it doesn't affirm the worldly way of doing things. The law actually instructs us to be more generous than the world is? Or does not the law also say these things? Is the world accidentally getting the Bible right? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. That is in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4. And that verse seems really out of place there in that setting. And you can turn there and read it if you like. So Paul, going back to this, he's almost having to look at that verse in its own context and say, Here's what it means. And I think there's a very generalistic meaning Paul is getting at. Like, when you put an ox to work, don't be mean to your animal. Don't muzzle it. While he is threshing the grain, he needs to be able to eat. It needs to be cared for. It needs to be sustained. That interpretation is affirmed in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10, which encourages people to, what? Take care of their animals. And Paul says, this is God's heart. There's a principle here. When you are being served, care for those serving you. That's the principle. Do not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And then Paul says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Obviously, on a very basic level, God is concerned about his creation. But here Paul says there's a, there's a deeper principle. God is concerned about more than simply, merely how oxen are treated. He's concerned about his people. And even in the context of Deuteronomy chapter 25, it's how to treat people. It's interesting that a verse about how to treat an ox is in there, right? But Paul says God is not concerned about oxen, is he? For he is speaking altogether for our sake. Yes, for our sake, it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope that the thresher, and the thresher, to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. And then Paul, what's loose of this illustration, and again refers explicitly to himself and his own, his own ministry. If we, Barnabas and Paul, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Well, considering the principle you just described, Paul, I guess not. 
Verse 12, if others share the right over you in the secular world, right? Do we not more in the church? And this is liberty, remember, not right, liberty. Nevertheless, we did not use, or I should say it this way, the way liberty and right are used are synonymous. I shouldn't say one is right and one is wrong because the word can be translated both ways and it does refer to some kind of authority. If others share the right over you, the liberty over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right or this liberty, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. And then verse 14 really strikes me. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But Paul jumps to, but he doesn't just say it's, it's good for the local church to provide the needs of those who work hard at preaching and teaching. He actually says the Lord directed it. And he's saying the Lord directed it from Deuteronomy chapter 25 where, where Moses gives this law or God gives this law through Moses about not muzzling an ox while it's threshing grain. But that law, Paul didn't explicitly say those who proclaim the gospel get your living from the gospel. That's not what it said. So Paul here is taking a, a principle that he has found in the Old Testament and he is teaching it as if it is God's explicit instruction. Here I find a really decent hermeneutical rule for us, something I think God wants us to grab a hold of. If there is a legitimate principle, it is as binding as explicit law. Treat your animals good. Treat your pastors good. Not that pastors are your animals. Two different things, right? We want to be clear about that. We don't, we don't think a pastor is an ox. It's... Treat them well. Treat them good. Take care of them. And Paul also uses this designation. He doesn't say God directed here. He says the Lord, Kyrios, which is a title given explicitly to Jesus in the New Testament. So I... I thought, well, was there anywhere in the Gospels Jesus actually, actually taught this? In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends his disciples out on a short-term mission trip in Capernaum to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of heaven. It is here. The Messiah is here. He's come to take over the world. Go preach this message. In his instruction, Jesus told his disciples, don't take anything with you. Maybe an extra tunic. Maybe the sandals that are on your feet and a staff. Don't take anything else with you. You don't need the provisions that you earned from your secular work. Peter, don't take fish. Don't take money for your money belts. You don't need anything that you earned in your, in your secular workplace when you're on my mission. Well, okay, Lord, how are we going to be provided for? <laughs> and Jesus, there in that context, says, this is Matthew, Matthew chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus says, for a, 
for a worker is worthy of his support. And Jesus pulls that one out, right? That's the context. So like Jesus explicitly taught this principle when he sent his disciples out. And I think Paul probably is picking up on that. He's a, he's a pretty knowledgeable guy, right? So also the Lord directed. This is a command. Those, it was a command in the Old Testament explicitly for oxen. It was a command from Christ specifically for the 12 disciples when they went on this short-term mission trip. Now I'm saying, Paul is saying, through the, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God breathing these words onto this page, Paul is now saying, the Lord has directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. This is applied to all of those who preach the gospel as their labor on this earth. This is a command of God. So that is the admonition for the local church, right? God commanded it. You better pay him. To put it succinctly. And if that's where we were going to end this passage, that's where I would have to stop. But I want to get at Paul's heart as well because it's really important to know the mentality with which the teacher should approach these things and this command. Verse 15. But I, the Apostle Paul, he's figuratively applying this to himself, remember, but I have used none of these things. I'm, I'm not taking advantage of that command right now with you. Paul even goes as far as to say, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. I'm not writing about this so that you'll start giving me a paycheck. Right? This is where the, the pastor who is being paid by his congregation kind of stops and says, I'm not asking for a raise. <laughs> I'm preaching this passage of scripture. And it's where I stop and say, I'm, I'm not asking for a, a paycheck. Right? Give me a 10% raise. Let's see. 10% of zero is... Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate the heart. That's, that's great. Yeah. But I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things to you so that it will be done so in my case. I'm not interested in sordid gain. I do not love money. For it would be better for me to die. Oh, okay, Paul. Then have any man make my boast an empty one. Well, what is Paul's boast? What is his reward? For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, of, for I am under compulsion. That's what he has been called to do. That is his labor on this earth for the Holy Spirit. He's under compulsion of the Holy Spirit. For woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. In fact, the Holy Spirit will chastise him if he doesn't preach the gospel. Paul doesn't have a choice but to preach the gospel. Okay, being compelled by the Holy Spirit is not an idea popular today right? Even in so-called churches that exalt the ministry of the Holy Spirit above every other ministry. They don't want to talk about the Holy Spirit compelling us. Compelling. They want to talk about what they can get from the Holy Spirit. Those are two very different things. When the Holy Spirit is really at work, the Holy Spirit is the one doing the compelling, not us. Very important to realize that. He is compelled by the Holy Spirit. If he doesn't preach the gospel, he will be chastised this is another way we can tell what we're called to do, right? If we can stay away from it and not be chastised by the Holy Spirit, you're not called to do it. I've tried to leave the ministry a few times. The Holy Spirit is a strong chastiser. 
Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. This sounds too Calvinistic for me, Paul. Verse 17. For if I do this... It it really doesn't. I was being a little sarcastic. Okay. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Now transitioning from from being compelled by the Holy Spirit to being compelled by the church's finances. Right? Is what this whole passage is about. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as to not make full use of my right or liberty in the gospel. Paul doesn't want to become a hindrance to the gospel. When a local church begins paying a preacher or teacher... there is an avenue through which that local church could begin to compel the pastor such that he is enslaved to the expectations and will of the congregation rather than the expectations and will of God. Let me give you a brief example, and I've experienced this in quite a few different local churches. When a church pays a pastor and something needs to be done, let's get the guy we pay to go do it, right? instead of being trained up for the work of ministry and doing ministry. This happens in a broad context in North America. And good churches can go sour because they begin focusing on the compensation and compelling their elders by way of compensation. And then they drag their pastors into sin because the pastor has to be concerned about losing his job and not being able to provide for his family and, and making sure not to upset parishioners sometimes just doesn't work with the proclamation of the gospel because the gospel gives us very hard truth. And the word of God admonishes us and corrects us and rebukes us and encourages us and lifts us up and edifies us. But if any elder of the church is under compulsion, he is living in sin because he's not free, free to follow the instruction, the expectations of Jesus Christ, our, our Lord. Go back up to verse 14 with me so I can, I can bear this out just a little bit. So also the Lord directed, we talked about that being a command, right? This is a command now. Those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Who? Those who visit the sick to get their living? No. Those who, those who are sure to call everyone on some list that needs to be called to get their... That's not, what, that's not what Paul said. Those who make it a point to visit as many people as they can all the time to get their living from... That's, that's not the instruction from the Lord. Those who make the church attractive and draw a certain demographic in to get their living from... No. Those who build cool programs to get their living from... It's not what Paul is writing here. Those who are really good at entertaining youth and building great big youth ministries to get their living from the gospel. No. those who dedicate their entire lives to proclaiming the gospel. 
which is hard. It's the hardest work I have ever done. I don't know for sure, but I imagine the hardest work you've ever done, Ken. Proclaiming the gospel, getting it right, rightly dividing the word of truth. It is tiring. Y'all, the work I do right now as a tent maker is hard labor. But it is nowhere near the intensity of trying to prepare a sermon. It takes hours and hours and hours, and I know this from experience, to get it right. To learn how to be careful with our words, to learn the heart of the text at hand, to explore context, to know the Bible, to know theology. It takes, it takes time, and it takes money, and it takes frustration and tears to, to dive into the depths of who God is this testimony about him. And just this week, I was struggling with quite a few issues I thought I had. And no, they come back up again, and the Holy Spirit starts turning your heart and twisting it, like this, drying it out. Saying, hey, you need to rethink a couple things. That's a frustration. And it takes our entire lives to work through these things, and that's why... That's why it is desirable to care for someone who is giving their hours to this work so that they don't have to divide their time between secular industry and pouring into the saints of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5, 2, Peter even writes, do not serve out of compulsion, elders, but willingly, with the servant's heart, with gladness. In this passage, we see the command for the congregation of God. Pay those who work hard at preaching and teaching. They are worthy of their wages. And then from the pastor's standpoint, don't be about sordid gain. Don't love money. Which means if a church body begins to compel a pastor to act or work a certain way, the elder who is of God is to be willing to say, okay, but I have to honor God, so I will no longer accept a paycheck. Which is hard in the world. It has led to my departure from a couple different bodies of believers because they started living in sin like this and were unwilling to, to repent. We are either for ourselves or we are for God. And if I'm just going to bring this down and, and just apply it in a really general way, this ultimately comes down to the way we care for one another. The basic principle here. And if the fruit of our lives bearing out shows that we don't care for one another, we are not in Christ. In a sincere way, not in a manipulative way, not in a way that, hey, if I care for you, I have something to get from that, but as soon as, as, soon as my caring for you doesn't benefit me, I'm going to turn against you, which, which is 
probably happen to all of us, right? But in a way that is sincere, let us observe the fruit of our own lives this morning. And if repentance is needed, we come to, we come to God to repent and we ask Him to move us to be a local church, starting out to be a local church that cares for people, cares for the people of Douglas, cares about sound teaching, doesn't place burdens and burdens and burdens upon people that we don't find in Scripture, to be a people of generosity, to be a people who, who strive to have teachers in the church who are devoted singularly to teaching, not being, not being drawn away by other things and expectations. This admonition does not exempt any elder from just simply being a Christian, caring for people, loving people, visiting people when people are on his heart, calling people will say, hey, how you doing? But we don't do that as the elders of the church. We do that as Christians. And that is what every Christian is to be doing, right? So we train the saints up for the work of ministry. And I hope Douglas Reformed Church is a place where this happens. And I know I don't have any particular church in mind. I have made it a point not to really go and investigate the other churches in Douglas yet, right? Because I don't want to sound like I'm talking against particular bodies here. But I venture to guess that quite a few of the ministries here in Douglas are about that top-down sort of ministry and don't really have a biblical model when it comes to the ministry of the teaching elder or elders. Let's strive to have godly ecclesiology, structure, doctrine of the church, polity, and let's strive to just basically care for people. And if we have biblical ecclesiology, that only facilitates us caring for more and more people. Um, so we, we really, by imposing our own expectations on others with, with our interpretation, good or bad, of the Word of God, imposing our expectations on others really, really limits how much we can care for others. But when we choose to forsake our own expectations in light of Christ's, this will be a local church that rocks this community for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, it's good to be here. Let's pray, and then I believe we have some more music as we dwell upon the Word of God. Lord, thank you for everything. Thank you for meeting with us. Thank you for condescending to us. Thank you for your bread and your wine, and thank you for this communion here in this covenant of body of believers. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.